Welcome to City Speak with Max Basuda-Farkas. Eric Jaffe is the editorial director for Sidewalk Labs, a company started by Google's parent corporation, Alphabet, with the aim of bringing technology and innovation to bear on the built environment. I sat down with Eric to discuss some of Sidewalk's most promising technologies and to hear his reflections on how Sidewalk managed to unite two groups of stakeholders that have not always gotten along, technologists and urbanists. Stay tuned. CitySpeak is proudly sponsored by Batoni Architects. Batoni Architects specializes in making unique buildings, homes, and spaces that bring design alive for their clients. Visit BatoniArchitects.com to explore their projects. Eric Jaffe, welcome to CitySpeak. Thank you, Max. Great, great to be here. Let's start with some background on you. You are an astoundingly prolific writer. And I say that because besides your current role as the editorial director at Sidewalk Labs, you were previously the New York Bureau Chief of City Lab, as well as the author of two additional books several years ago. And so although I wouldn't call the topic of cities and urban life a niche topic per se, I can't imagine it's an area that a young writer necessarily knows straight away that that's what they're going to focus in on. But was that the case for you? How did you come about in this kind of really interesting area of writing? I'm not sure I would call myself prolific so much as old, I guess, Max. But <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's a good question. The, the truth is I kind of backed into this world and also in many ways City Lab, which at the time was Atlantic Cities, helped create the, this this niche, as you call it. So I think you know, I started my career backwards, kind of, from the way journalists normally do. They usually have a long career in reporting, and then they write a book. I started by writing a book. Um, and my book was a four-century complete history of the oldest highway in America. It's called the Boston Post Road. And the idea was this road could be a character that takes us through the social evolution of this country and, and talks about kind of the ways that transportation, communication, and social change you know, they all, they all impact each other. And as you know, as you get into transportation in the early 20th century, you, you really start to collide um, in unfortunate ways, usually with cities. Um, and you get into, you know, highway, the Highway Act and urban renewal um, and, and all the damage that was caused by overbuilding our highway system and intruding um, on, on urban areas and, and city neighborhoods um, in harmful ways. Um, and so that that's kind of where I began my career. And, and then it just happened that, um, you know, cities were becoming more and more popular as a topic in media. I think in large part because you, you started to see a population revival in cities in America uh, beginning around 1990 that you hadn't seen basically for the entire 20th century. Um, you know, obviously Richard Florida kind of chronicles this in The Rise of the Creative Class. And he was at the Atlantic as a contributing editor and, uh, you know, worked with them to start a site that, again, at the beginning was called the Atlantic Cities, later became City Lab. Um, now it's actually owned by Bloomberg Media. So it's had a long history of its own. But uh, I was, you know, part of the, the original team that began there, I believe in fall 2011, um, with just a number of, of super uh, wonderful, talented writers and reporters and folks who, who were you know, interested in cities. Um, and we were just kind of, you know, grateful and fortunate to have the Atlantic 
I think it's fair to say, be the first kind of major media outlet that cared about cities and urban life enough to devote an entire vertical to it. And then, of course, Sidewalk Labs. How did that, how did that happen? And maybe we can frame this. Um, I think I mentioned to you, I've been following Sidewalk Labs since it was founded, really. So I feel like I can practically recite every twist and turn of the company's development. Um, but for our listeners who probably aren't familiar previously, maybe you can frame this by saying, you know, how did you get involved and what, frankly, is Sidewalk Labs? What is it, what is it that the company does ostensibly and why was it founded? While I was working at City Lab, you're focused on cities, you're writing about the, the challenges facing cities, um, and I loved doing that. I love just thinking about the problems facing cities. I've lived in cities my whole adult life, I guess. I've been in New York more than 15 years now, although I'm originally from Washington, D.C. And for me, I, I kind of wanted this challenge of, all right, I've been talking about the problems facing cities for a long time now. Can I actually do something about it? Uh, and, you know, one way, of course, to do something about it is city government, and, and they do wonderful work every day. But Sidewalk Labs was created to kind of try to tackle a lot of these same problems uh, from a private sector mindset and an innovation mindset, kind of um, harnessing the ethos of Jane Jacobs, where the, the solutions to city problems are an economic force in and of themselves. And what were some of those problems that Sidewalk Labs, in the beginning at least, because I know a lot has changed, in the beginning, what were some of those problems that Sidewalk Labs was targeting as its areas of focus. Yeah, and, and so you, you asked me what Sidewalk Labs was, and I didn't answer that part, so I will. We are an urban innovation company, uh, and what we do is, is we try to help cities address their greatest challenges. I think it's fair to say that originally we kind of didn't define challenges, like any challenge you could think of uh, was fair game. Now, uh, more and more, we've kind of focused on sustainability and affordability as the two challenges we see um, as a place where the private sector can really make a big difference, right? There's still many, many problems across cities. Some are always going to be the domain of government, but we do think there's a lot of room for the private sector to step in, particularly around sustainability and affordability to help move the needle. Um, and, and the way we do that, the way we think about that, uh, helping cities with their challenges is in a few ways. First, it was we create individual solutions, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of those um, that that cities can can use to help build better neighborhoods and build cleaner systems. We advise on comprehensive innovation plans. So these are major development projects, large scale development projects uh, in cities around the world, um, in order to kind of help developers bring some of those solutions together. Uh, and we also invest in companies. So we have a portfolio of urban innovation companies that in some cases spun out of Sidewalk Labs, in some cases were always independent, and we just felt strongly that, that they were doing wonderful work, so we invested in them. Um, and we can talk about those as well if you want. But those are kind of the three ways that we think about helping to start tackle some of these big challenges because you're never going to solve something as big as sustainability, affordability. There, there is no one solution to that, right? It, it's It's a suite of solutions coming from both public and private sector um, and, and hopefully working in harmony in a way that both can help the community but also keep the economy moving forward. What has really fascinated me about, about Sidewalk Labs is precisely this culture that it seems you have developed uh, 
as almost more of a think tank where you put very, very intelligent people from formerly separate sectors. And I'm thinking in particular, uh, you know, technologists, software engineers, and urbanists, developers, and people who are interested in the built world. I wanted to ask you, how has that culture formed and coalesced internally? And the reason I ask is, prior to Sidewalk Labs, I wouldn't necessarily assume that those two groups of stakeholders would necessarily get along. And in fact, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest in historically the interests were misaligned. So how has that how has it been culturally within Sidewalk Labs with those kinds of two groups working in tandem? I think it's a really perceptive point. Um, and we think we do think of it as as a differentiator for us, right? Like you know, to your point, you don't usually gather urbanists, technologists in the same room, but we also have layered on top of that kind of you know, infrastructure experts, financial experts, because at the end of the day, if something isn't financially sustainable, it's not going to move forward. You know, you know, privacy experts, really all types of experts from across uh, many different worlds. And we've brought them into the same, the same room, so to speak. And, and to your point, you know, there is a tension there, right? Sometimes we refer to this actually as the urbanist technologist divide, because as an urbanist, you know, you're generally thinking about uh, bottom-up solutions, incremental solutions, and, and you're thinking about just, again, making sure everybody can benefit from, from the ideas and the plans that move forward, um, and that they're moving forward in you know, a slow enough and deliberate enough way to ensure that, that everybody or the most amount of people are benefiting from, from a plan or a solution. And, and you know, on the flip side, technology company really their mindset is let's, let's scrap it all and let's start over, right? And let's move really fast um, and let's think differently about this problem. And, and they both want to get to the same place, right? They both want to get to some better future, some solution, um, but they go about that very differently. And, and reconciling that, you know, has been a challenge, but I think it's an important challenge to, to wrestle with, right? I think you do need both. You do need uh, the ability to help everyday people living in cities, working in cities, visiting cities, make their lives better on a day-to-day basis. But you also need an eye toward the future and the really big plans that can kind of truly move the needle when it comes to these major challenges that cities keep facing. And so we have kind of, you know, reached an equilibrium and a harmony where, where we recognize we need both. There are, are great things that both perspectives bring to the table and we try to balance that. I think the evidence of the success of that um, partnership and dynamic is in the actual products that you've spun off. And there's one in particular I mentioned to you before we spoke today that I'm really, really interested in. I generally tend to hesitate to reach for superlatives, but I really don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that the Delve product that you recently released is poised to be potentially one of the most revolutionary technologies of the urban landscape um, and could potentially transform what we see in the built world. So with that introduction, just tell us what what is Delve and how would you evaluate how it's um, been used thus far? Yeah, well, I I appreciate those kind words and hopefully we can live up to them. Um, You know, but I agree that the potential for Delve is vast and it is truly an exciting 
product and, and solution to be working with and to see in action. And we're really just kind of uh, at the ground floor here with Delve. So, so hopefully we'll see more and more. But for those who don't know, Delve is it's an urban planning tool that uses machine learning to help development teams design better projects, really better neighborhood project plans. And, and the way it does that is that there's a core tension to every development project, every neighborhood project, every large scale plan has competing priorities. And even if you're not a developer, you can appreciate some of these. The, the one I always go back to, because it's, it's simple, but it's effective, I think, is this tension between daylight and, and density, right? So, the, so the more density you want, the more housing units you want to build, bigger buildings you want to build, that's intention with this need that everyone has for, for daylight, right? Whether that's daylight onto your specific apartment unit, daylight onto some shared public spaces, those two things are intention. If you build up, you block the sun. Um, if you build out, you block, you block maybe the open space. And so every development project already has to wrestle with tensions like that. But the way it typically does it is, you know, you might be able to afford, depending on your project, to hire an architect to or, or a firm or two to, to come up with, you know, a handful of plans. That's if you're lucky. Uh, maybe a handful of different plans that might be able to get around those those competing priorities um, and give you something that that tries to to give you a little bit of each. Um, but what Delve does is it can take those those constraints. It can take your essential inputs, right? How many square feet are you going to use for residential? What are the project economics you're looking for? The basics. Um, it can take the you know the zoning regulations. It can take all of this information, and then it can layer on top your your priorities, right? Because again, you have to make priorities when you're developing a neighborhood. You could say, "I don't care about daylight at all," and I get I don't care if we score a zero on daylight. But but no one's going to want to live in your neighborhood, um, and if you're you know working with a city, they're not going to let you do that. So once you give Delve all of these inputs, right, the the basics of your plan the basics of your constraints and the priorities that you're trying to um, solve for, then that's when it uses kind of technology and it uses machine learning to explore millions of plans, right? It, it, and, it, and it's doing this in the background and it's trying all sorts of configurations, all of them, again, take into account all these inputs that you've put in. And then it's showing you the best ones. It's saying, okay, Max, uh, I went through all of these millions of plans. Here are the eight best. Um, here are the eight ones that give you the most possible daylight, but that also meet all of your objectives around how many apartment units there's going to be. Um, and, and now you've got, you know, your starting point. So it's not the end. Delve doesn't solve development, but it is a starting point for, okay, now we can move forward knowing that everything we want in this plan is going to be achieved now we got to think about what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like? What's the community input on some of the architectural shapes? And, and then you can really move forward kind of creatively and start to get into the, um, the nitty gritty of, of what can bring a development to life without worrying if this plan is actually going to allow people to you know, experience daylight and or have open spaces while still being able to to have a place to live there. So, so that's kind of what's really exciting to me about Delve. It, it just, what we think about it in a way that it kind of supercharges 
a development team. It gives them options and ideas they might never have considered. The Dell team worked on a case study uh, with a developer in the UK, a developer named Quintain. Um, it was on a 12-acre uh, mixed-use development site near London, a place called Wembley Park, part of that very big development. And they were trying to solve for exactly this problem, right? It was, we have um, a set of financial constraints. We can't, within our typical method, figure out how to add more housing units. And we really want to do that. Um, and so Delve worked with that team and they were able to add hundreds of housing units. On average, the housing units actually were bigger than in the baseline plan. And they also um, expanded the amount of daylight access, expanded the amount of open space. Uh, we're able to, you know, again, achieve all of those goals for Quintain. And now Quintain takes that plan and they can start to build out um, the details and bring it to life. And, and so we're really excited about Dell's potential. I, I know, you know, it sounds like you are too. And it's such a win-win-win for, for everybody, right? The developer gets what they need to move a project forward. The city gets what they need in terms of a quality of life and, and a number of development units, uh, housing units rather, um, that will overall help the market. Um, and kind of everybody involved is able to, to the best extent possible, get what they want. It, it, communities as well, right? We actually see a future for Delve where it really helps the community feedback process. Um, because again, you're starting from a point of okay, we can take what we know the community wants from this development, what the community needs from this development, whether it's park space, transit access, whatever. And we can build that in as a priority. And, and then Dev will help us understand what type of design can get us there. So again, we're really excited by it. We think, uh, we think it's got great promise. I'd like to just close with a question that is inspired from a piece of yours that I absolutely loved and that you wrote back in... January of 2020, before the pandemic. And the title of that piece was Climate Change and Inequality Led to This Ancient City's Demise. I won't attempt to pronounce the ancient city's name. I believe it's something like Chatalhyuk. Yeah, um, I, I, that's closer than I was going to get. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> great. And, and I, the timing of that piece was kind of uncanny in that it contemplates how and why cities decline, which has become the subject du jour ever since the pandemic, obviously. So just so to close, what what's your personal response as well as maybe sidewalks to, to the many who are claiming that cities right now are in an existential crisis? Yeah, you know, I think, I think we've all felt that to varying degrees across this year. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, I've been in the city, my wife and I, this, this whole time, uh, we've been in New York and it, and it was really hard. You know, this was a, a terrible year. I'm not saying anything kind of revelatory there. Everybody, everybody feels this and everybody knows this. And it was especially hard in cities um, at first when we didn't even know how this virus got transmitted. You weren't sure if you could touch a doorknob. You weren't sure if you could go outside. And so now as we're learning more and more about it and we understand more how to protect ourselves, that's becoming easier to manage, I guess, but it's still it still really makes you you think about the purpose of cities and and the wonderful nature of cities because it's people getting together outside inside being together in in one place uh, and those things were threatened by this virus and, and I think it, it's made kind of 
Some people probably question whether the city is, is right for them. But I think for, for a lot of us, I know for me, it's really made us feel like we understand what is so great about cities and, and maybe we took it for granted in some ways that we, we couldn't have possibly appreciated. I have no doubt that, that there will be a kind of return to cities. And I don't actually think, you know, as many people left cities as, as we fear. I, I have no doubt that as you've seen in that particular piece that you mentioned, as we saw a century ago in 1918, you know, Cities are often the focal point of, of great challenges. That's kind of, you know, one of the things that makes urban life so special and so different uh, is the fact that when you bring so many people together, you get problems, but you also get solutions. You get, you get greatness and you also get, uh, you know, difficulties. And, and so I think recognizing that, that those are two sides to the same coin um, is a helpful thing to remember. Uh, at a time like this. But I think, you know, in order to be successful, really cities are going to have to learn that we've got to support, we've got to support everyone. We've got to find new ways to support all of the essential workers that have really kept cities going. Whatever we have left of cities, it's because of the folks who have had to, you know, go to work every day and have not necessarily had the luxury to dial in remote and to take meetings from their home office. And that is what has taken, you know, that's what's kept cities going. And, and it's, I think, something that would be easy to forget once, once we get back on, on, a, on a, you know, safe footing and hopefully the vaccine gets rolled out successfully and quickly and, and we feel something closer to normal. But we can't forget that, right? We can't forget that. We need to, we need government to do its job in supporting uh, essential workers, we need government and private industry together to recognize that this is what drives cities, the ability for all types of people to live in this same place. And unless, you know, if we forget that, then I think cities are in trouble. This is the opportunity to remember that, that I think we must not uh, squander. Eric Jaffe, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Max. Thanks for listening to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and audio production by Greg Gordon-Smith and Source Code Creative Media. And be sure to check out urbanized.city, now featuring commercial real estate news in Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Detroit, LA, and New York. Stay tuned for our next episode.